Hello, welcome to episode 126 of Decentralized Revolution, the Mises Caucus podcast. I'm Aaron. I'm your host, uh, co-host. I've hosted a lot of these things by myself back in the day before we were live every Monday night. Um, and Brandy, it's nice to have you back. Your Labor Day uh, plans last week. So how's everything going? Good. Yeah, I uh, went to New Hampshire the to the free state. Okay. Well, Allegedly. Yeah. Well, yeah. If you have good. any, uh, if you have any interesting updates from up there, uh, let us know. <laughs> uh, and Mike, of course, what's your cat's name again? Gadget. This is Gadget. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, what are you, Gadget, up to? Faithful co-host. Uh, I've been hard at work all week on. Uh, well, I'll just say an announcement that's coming later in the week. Uh, I think the uh, Friday episode of uh, Part of the Problem with Dave Smith should have a, a pretty interesting announcement and uh, perhaps a Q&A on Twitter spaces that night. Uh, I think we're going to see a, uh, a candidate enter the race uh, that, you know, we've we've had on the podcast a few times. Uh, it's Gadget. It's, it's Gadget, right? It is Ga- Gadget. Yeah, because <laughs> there was that one cat that won mayor. I forget where that was. Uh, but, you know, it's the whole strat. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I'm very excited about what's coming. And, uh, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of excitement. I think uh, we're going to have a, a good candidate and uh, somebody that can, you know, represent us. Somebody we've always wanted somebody from the Mises Institute to run. Uh, and we finally got that. And uh, somebody who has a lot of media experience and who's going to get a lot of movement support. So I think good things. Good, good things. You're, you're not very good at keeping secrets, but that's OK. I know. Yeah. <laughs> So what, before we bring uh, our guest on, uh, what do we want to mention? Um, I, I sent out an email today to the email list. If you haven't uh, opened your email today, check that out. I thought it was pretty good. Just talking about, you know, what the job is and uh, the fact that, I mean, we have to build this thing to last. There's no shortcuts to uh, um, success even uh, when we do, I think, uh, are going to have a great presidential candidate. That's not the, you know, that's only the beginning. And, you know, really to work what we're all about at the Mises Caucus is to, you know, it's Project Decentralized Revolution. It's the local strategy, which, you know, if you haven't read that document, um, you need to check that out on our site. And uh, we're just continuing to do that. No matter what happens in a presidential campaign or in national politics, you know, our, you know, we've, we're doing something that the LP hasn't done in 50 years. And, uh, so, uh, how do we, what, any other details on project decentralized revolution that are new the last week or so, Mike? Well, we need you to run for a city council. I mean, the best time to run is in 24 when we have the presidential race. That's where most people are paying attention. That's when we uh, recruit the most people. There's the most volunteers, most candidates. So go to, uh, run as libertarian.com. We're still doing trainings every month. We've recruited about, 400 people uh, through that funnel so far to run for city council, mayor, school board for the purposes of nullification of the federal and state governments. Uh, so training every month and uh, and a nice support network of volunteers, phone bankers, uh, graphic design uh, people, all kinds of stuff. So and then to, if you can't run, but you can give some money, go to uh, lpmesiscaucus.com slash donate and, uh, you know, throw us some money, five, ten bucks a month even. Uh helps a lot and uh, can make a difference in these small races. Yep. So today's 9-11. We can talk about that a second, but uh, I want to bring our guest on when we do, because there's kind of a connection to somebody that uh, he used to work for 
uh, and uh, what this particular person did on uh, the day after 9-11 published a piece. So, Mike, I'll let you uh, introduce uh, uh, our guest as I bring him in here. So go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we got Jim Babka here tonight. He hosts the uh, podcast Grace Archy with Jim Babka. He's also the editor at large the, for the Advocates for Self-Government. That's where the uh, world's smallest political quiz comes from. Uh, and he's the executive producer at Respect America and a colleague at the Foundation for Harmony and Prosperity. Uh, he's best known as the president of Agenda Setters by Downsize DC, uh, co-authored the Read the Bills Act uh, and One Subject at a Time, One Subject at a Time Act. Uh, he's also the co-creator of the Zero Aggression uh, Project. Uh, Jim has been a syndicated radio show host. Uh, he took a free press lawsuit all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and he was the press secretary of the Harry Brown for President campaign. Uh, and I think that's kind of where the connection comes in that you're talking about. So really happy to have you with us here tonight, Jim. Good to Thank see you. you. Thank you very much. Jim, did you know, um, of course you knew uh, Harry Brown in uh, uh, 2001. Um, tell us about what was like working with him. And like when you saw the column that he wrote, it was called uh, When Will We Learn? And he published it. I think it was originally published on antiwar.com. Um and it's still up there. Um, and uh, I'm sure you know about it and, and know. Uh, just tell us about Harry Brown and the type of courage he had to write a piece like that. When sure, he did. I'd be glad to. Uh, I was uh, the press secretary for the Harry Brown 2000 campaign. And throughout the both of his campaigns, he talked about the war on terror quite a bit before such a thing existed. He talked about the fact that there was going to likely be some kind of terrorist attack because of our foreign policy. In uh, after the campaign was over, we started an organization called the American Liberty Foundation. I was employed there and I became the president of the American Liberty Foundation on September 10th or actually 9th that weekend, wow. 2001. So my second full day on the job was 9-11. Uh, Harry, uh, I, I, I called him and said, hey, here's what's happening because he was a nocturnal creature. He was a writer and he preferred to work at night when things were quiet. And so he was not up. We made a decision to wait until we had a little bit more information what to do, but we did end up waking him. And uh, he sat down and wrote that column. That column, When Will We Learn, ended up becoming a series. It was followed by a couple more different series. He wrote a number of different articles. It was published originally on World Net Daily. Oh, okay. uh, we had a pay, he, he was getting paid to write columns for there, but that got instantly redistributed anti-war, others. It was his most republished column ever, which is saying something because he had been writing columns for many years, all the way back, frankly, to the late 1960s for the Los Angeles Times. Mm -hmm. And this, nevertheless, has got translated into different languages and so forth. And the argument that he essentially made was that, you know, we shouldn't have been surprised. Uh, he, he basically introduced what a lot of people now recognize as blowback uh, as the explanation for what will happen and titled it, When Will We Learn? It wasn't well received by everyone uh in the immediate aftermath because a lot of people were very upset and angry understandably so um but a lot of them didn't understand what had happened or where we'd come from and he was just always consistent and straight down the line like that yeah he strikes me as a guy who like even and you know i i don't know how old each of you were on 9-11 but i was an adult and i remember just like pretty soon by that evening and afternoon people were really sort of already like, okay, um, you know, kind of taking it all in, but already like, okay, who do we go get, you know, who are the bad guys? And, mm -hmm. you know, this 
obviously we didn't deserve this. And of course the people in the building didn't deserve it, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, but so a lot of people were so far away from, you know, the viewpoint that Harry had in that column, but even the people who were, um, maybe uh, did know what was going on and who were libertarian or anti-interventionist, very, very few of them would have had the guts to, uh, stand up and say those things on that day. And like the only other guy I could think of, of course, is, is Ron Paul, like it, but, and both Ron and Harry, uh, I, I never met Harry Brown. And, uh, but both of those guys strike me as somebody who like, not only would they not be afraid to say it, I don't think it would even, uh, it, tell me if I'm wrong, Jim, but it doesn't strike me that Harry Brown would even stop for a second to think about what the reaction no that day we had a friend of ours dear friend of ours uh, another well-known libertarian at the time called me and we hadn't woken harry up yet and he said uh, please tell harry to wait whatever he's gonna do please tell him to wait <laughs> and, and so harry's response was if you talk to him again tell him he can get his own column yep. and uh uh so you know it was all meant with sincerity and and so and love but uh harry pushed right ahead and did the right thing so what kind of, I'm sure you guys got death threats or like, what, just tell me how, um, how, how his you know, response to 9-11. I, I, it was, it was, so we had a, a person who was on our board uh, who uh, wanted to see if he could fire one or both of us, <laughs> which was rather interesting uh, because we, we did some of this stuff. But other than, you know, it, it's really, it's a situation where most people knew what who Harry Brown was. So we lost a couple of donors. Uh, we had, he'd attracted some really a famous talk show host during his campaign that had endorsed him uh, in Neil Bortz and Larry Elder, Mm -hmm. uh, both of whom immediately turned. But, uh, you know, Larry came back around a little bit. Uh, Larry Elder ended up being on his on the final episode of his radio show uh, that we did tributes to Harry when he passed away. I hosted those shows and Larry came on and recorded some very nice things. Uh, But I don't know whether Neil ever got over it. He was very upset, felt we just needed to carpet bomb and just destroy the entire Middle East. so most people, but I think a lot of people understood. And over time, Harry was vindicated. It was a very uh, formative experience for me because I joined the movement in 1996, thanks to his campaign. And I would I came from conservative Republican side. That's how I was raised. My dad was a Goldwater Reagan conservative. And I still was a little bit patriotic and, and so forth. That was a real eye opening experience, reading those columns and following along with him in my new role. And so a year later, uh, we were watching George W. Bush lead us in Iraq. He stood in Cincinnati, Ohio, and gave a speech saying that if we failed to act against Saddam Hussein, the result could be a mushroom cloud over an American city. And they proceeded to lie. And so we, inspired by Harry uh, and Jude Winiski in particular, who was uh, one of the supply side uh, uh, giants, uh, both had put out some anti-war material. Our attorney, Bill Olson, was sending me things. And we decided to go do, build a site called truthaboutwar.org. And Harry endorsed the site and helped promote the site. Uh, but that was one of the projects we did at the American Liberty Foundation. At that site, we said out loud, uh, we made a number of claims. The most shocking or sensational of them was that there were no nuclear weapons of mass destruction there which was an extraordinary claim to make at the time. You could not make that claim in the United States without, and that did get us death threats. I don't remember getting any after Harry's column, but that one did, and uh, that website did. We ran ads in six major American cities, and our budget was such that we could only afford to buy radio ads for one week at a time. 
And we get to the end of the week and we'd be like, yeah, we got a little more money raised. So we're ready to go. And they'd be like, we don't want your ads anymore because the stations mm. were getting phone calls, including in San Francisco of all places. Yeah. That's how much fervor there was to just punish anybody we could possibly reach even a year and a half later. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Mike. No, I mean, um, it's, it's hard for me to understand because I was like 12 years old at the time, <laughs> you know, so like I, I wasn't quite politically aware yet. I went through like a little mini patriotic phase, you know, mm -hmm. when I was that age. So it's it's uh, it's hard. I guess the, the modern corollary for me would be um, all this co co like COVID craziness, you know, yes. and and coming out coming out early uh, in on the right side of that. You know, um, so there's a lot of people in the movement who are too young to understand how earth shattering nine 11 was and how really the, the, the whole 21st century has been a pretty big shit show for America so far. Um, yeah. And it's radically different. It's in fact, you know, Aaron, we're starting off talking about Harry Brown. His yeah. final book was a collection of quotes called Liberty A to Z that was published by the advocates for self-government. And the way that that happened was when I joined the campaign in 19 late 1999, uh, as press secretary, we, I was given a file, and it had, I don't know, seven, 800 quotes in it at the time. It grew up to about 11, 1200 quotes. These were sound bites that Harry would use. He would, and they were all alphabetically arranged by topic. So, you know, starting off with like abortion and finishing off with like war, right? And he would, uh, he was just really on. He was, he just always had the right thing to say because he was extremely well prepared. And so when someone would ask him a question, he just knew to respond with that. So he carried around a little notepad inside his pocket uh, his suit pocket. And when he said something that he really liked or he thought was interesting during a commercial break or whatever, he'd make a couple notes. And that night when he was uh, alone and had his writing time again, he would uh, take those notes and he would begin to work them because he was a, a, a best-selling author. He would take them and rewrite them and try to make them the best that he possibly could. And he would put them in the file and, and expand his file and maybe delete or add or modify something else accordingly. And he was just so on that if you could, would have had the whole thing memorized by number, you would have said, oh, he just said, you know, quote 161. Oh, he just quote, said, quote, 723. I mean, it was just like that. It would come out of him. And so he made the most of every opportunity that he had uh, in front of him. He just was on uh, on message. Uh, what I learned from reading those columns in particular and what we started to do with Truth About War was that consistency that you could know, you cannot know, and this is the, the hard part, as libertarians, we frequently feel like Cassandra. Uh, we're shouting out the prophecy and nobody's paying any attention. Nobody believes us. Um, and the reason is, is because we, we operate on principles and heuristics, and we are able to kind of see the, the future and the way that things are gonna, gonna go, but we don't have all the evidence yet. Uh, that, by the way, that's classic faith. That's what that means. We don't quite have all the evidence yet, uh, in front of us. The evidence comes later. We have to make the bet early. So I did. I, I tried to follow Harry's example when COVID hit. We had, um, oh, Sergio. <laughs> uh, I know Sergio. So uh, we had, uh, uh, when, when COVID hit, we were, uh, eight different libertarians were contacted and uh, by the Associated Press and asked what, you know, okay, now we've run to the end of your theory, right? Because we have a real crisis and you guys don't have any answers. And we were all interviewed and given an opportunity to speak. And I took a chance and said, you know what? We're, we're, making, we're making instant mistakes here. And they're pretty serious and severe. And the path that we're on is bad. And I explained why. And my number one argument uh, in that interview was that no governor 
could possibly know what was right for every citizen of their state. They didn't know them personally. They didn't understand their situation. So imagine, if you will, for a moment, uh, a family who has a, a, an abusive alcoholic man in the house and the retreat each day uh, that, that uh, his, his wife or girlfriend enjoys was to be able to leave the house. Uh, maybe you've got a child who, you know, they get their lunch from school and that was their retreat as well. These lockdowns were a one size fits all program, uh, very different from how Sweden ultimately handled things. And they were applied in top down fashion. And there's just simply no way there's a knowledge problem. There's no way that the governor could possibly know what was best for everybody in that situation, even if the disease was as deadly as they were claiming it was at the time. And there was already reason is and this was in April. This was the beginning of April uh, 2020. It was already uh, obvious that maybe that this had been uh, exaggerated in terms of what its actual mortality was to most to most of us. Yeah. yeah, and there was there was a whole bunch of experts with with uh, competing opinions. It's not like the the narrative of of mass lockdowns was was monolith. You know, you had the Great Barrington Declaration. You had all those all those guys who were putting forward the uh, targeted uh, uh, isolation for like the at risk members because it was it was it came out pretty early that this was you know seventy seventy five plus or eighty plus with two plus comorbidities was like. Uh, 98% of the deaths and all of that stuff. And, and yet uh, everything was silenced. I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I think that is, that marks uh, in modern history where the distrust of the, I mean, there was always been the distrust of the media, yes. but I think, I, I think uh, this really drove home the distrust of the media because it, it was just so patently ridiculous. And I feel like there's like this weird thing going on in our society where like, we're just, putting everything that happened in the fog. Like we all know that it was kind of ridiculous, but we're not talking about it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and that's why I think it's something that's really important to kind of keep at the forefront. Um, you know, especially now that you're starting to hear more about potential lockdowns, potential mandates and all that stuff. And I think it's going to be a big topic for uh, the candidate in the, the 24 election. So I've been a libertarian since 1996. And every time we've had any kind of crisis and these, this is just two of them. Uh, the financial crisis was a third. Um, libertarian principle ended up being right at the end of the day. Uh, the evidence wasn't always there up front. You didn't have everything you needed right at the very start. You just had to step out on faith, knowing that you had done your homework, you had done your research, you had past historical experience on which you can rely. And the same thing ends up being true every time they try to drag us into a war. <laughs> the United States history of uh, on, on their history on intervention foreign has been bad for 125 years now. It's been uh, universally awful. In fact, you could go back even to the uh, Mexican-American War. Um, it has been constantly bad. They've and they have they've lied, they've dissembled, they've false flagged, they've done all kinds of these things repeatedly. But most of the time, we didn't find out until after it was over, yeah. and, and what the true facts are. So you can you can just take it to the bank. The odds that you're going to be wrong are low. Now that doesn't seem like a lot of comfort when nobody's willing to listen, but. Uh, you can stick to your guns. You always can stay to the true to the principle. And that's what Harry did. And, and it worked. Yeah. You, Mike, you mentioned like the, um, the COVID being kind of a watershed thing and just like sort of nine 11 was, and I, I don't know if you'd agree, Jim, but like, I think that this period, you know, between nine 11 and COVID looking back in history, I think it's going to seem pretty weird. I think that we're, on 9-11, I think we did see maybe an increase in trust in the media 
and things like that. And at the time, the you know the cable networks and the mainstream media really had a monopoly not you know a, not a monopoly but like a lock on, um, you know, getting opinions out to a lot of people. We were and, united in bloodlust, dude. No, That's, no, it, yeah, it, like. it was. It was <laughs> like it's just like oh, they had a simple explanation for a very traumatic event, and people bought it, and. You know, there, then there was the the anti-war left in response to the war in Iraq, but I, I it's that even that seems like a lifetime ago now. But so in in contrast, where I think that people were very credulous after nine eleven and did not really look into things. You know, a small minority did, but I just think that like you know even normal you know normies in my life who are not very political at all. Like the 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 COVID stuff has really broke. Like it, it, they don't even a they don't even watch the news, or, and b they when, what they do here they immediately discount. So I think it's actually going to end up being uh, a good thing. But I, I don't think it can be overstated how much nine eleven did change America, yes. and in some ways prepare. You know the fact that half the country or or more really just rolled over for COVID. I don't think that would have happened if we didn't have 20 years of post 9-11 America. Like if this had happened in the late 90s, uh, 90% of Americans would have told the government to, you know, to go jump in a lake. Well, if not wearing a mask. Well, they didn't really handle the AIDS pandemic very very well in the 80s, (laughs) to be completely fair. But I will I wanted to say that one thing is like it feels like every single uh, crisis that's happened in the U.S. was I don't know if other people feel like this, but it was like a catalyst for my own political like evolution. So like mm-hmm. even I know that 9-11 happened. I was very young, but like once I got to high school, I joined like the an- the anti-war left, you know, and mm-hmm. like that I was very like motivated by that energy. And then like Occupy as well. I think that like motivated me to be against like the Fed. I wasn't a libertarian yet, but I, I was in like that Occupy kind of mindset. And then with COVID, I think COVID pushed me so far into libertarianism. So it's like with every crisis, I, I feel like probably a lot of people have felt that, that every crisis is almost catalyst their political evolution I mean, a little bit. Yeah. 9-11, I wouldn't say the event of 9-11 because I was 12, but yeah. a couple of years later, say what you want about it, but 9-11 truth was my red pill. And and uh, I, you know, I'm not going to go into like my, my personal beliefs. I, I think generally speaking, when it comes to quote unquote conspiracy theories, the, the big thing that always goes wrong is people say, here's what happened, you know, instead of saying, okay, I know it didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, and, and there is a lot that we were told that happened that we can prove it. We say did not happen. Yes. Um, and, and uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know whether I would agree with you on nine 11 either, but you are right in your assessment that people tend to go too far in making their positive claims. Right. You're right. There are certain things that didn't happen. And it's sometimes, it, you know, <laughs> it's funny because what people usually ask, and I've been on the other side of this and been asked stuff like this all the time. It's like, well, what do you think their motives were? What were they up to? What were they trying to do? Like, and that's where people start to slip into trouble. Uh, I was listening to, and I can't think of the doctor's name, uh, one of the anti-COVID uh, doctors on Joe Rogan's uh, podcast a couple of years ago. And, you know, the, Robert Maloney. The other one. McCullough. Peter McCullough. McCullough. Peter McCullough. McCullough. Yeah. So Peter McCullough is on Joe Rogan, and, and he was talking about how they were doing everything they could to suppress alternative treatment, which, by the way, is gospel true. They were. And he's and, and Joe keeps saying, but, but, but doctor, why do you think they did it? Okay, but why did and he just did this for three hours? So the first hour, McCullough is like very robust, 
And he's like, you know, I, I'm not really, I'm a doctor. I can't really get into that. That's not really my Arabic piece. So other people have to speak to it. Uh, but it's a three hour show and Joe never let go. And people wear down by the, by the end of it. I think McCullough had like a tinfoil hat on his head and he's like, <laughs> it, it's, it's uh, this phenomena where they, they hypnotize everybody. And he's like, going, I can't think of the name of the phenomenon. Mass psychosis event. Or yeah, mass, mass psychosis uh, formation, mass formation yeah. psychosis. And he's just like going crazy. I mean, he's like practically jumping around the studio. And I'm like, wow. So no, if, if you go in for three hours with Joe, take a nap before you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, I want to I want to shift gears a little bit and yep. kind of go into the the title of the episode here, which is the the uh, the hidden history of the Libertarian Party's success. Um, and and Jim, me and you, I think first came into contact. I want to say a few months ago because uh, you, I guess you saw what me on one of my Reason interviews, and I had made the argument that uh, that we should consider Harry Brown in two thousand uh, year two thousand as a high water mark for the party, and not Gary Johnson in two thousand twelve, um, and to kind of put the, put a pin on that point, you know, the, the people who we call them the Prags, the Prags who ran the party uh, for all of that time, they, they, their metric of success was almost solely based on how many votes did we get in the presidential election? And because Gary Johnson got 4.3 million votes, um, you know, that was the high watermark for the party. You go back to 2000, Harry, uh, at the end of Harry Brown's second run, we had probably more than twice the uh, membership that we currently have right now today, uh, and then adjusted for inflation, a lot more money. And that was happening at the same time that Harry Brown got less than 1% of the vote. In fact, he got less votes and, and a lower percentage of the vote in 2000 than he did in 96. Yet we still had the peaks in membership and, and money. Um, now, I don't know what the political strategy was going on there, but um, there's a lot of people who don't seem to know this. And it's something that I, I've taken a, a, an interest in on how did this happen? What were they doing? How do we move away from it and how can we get back to it? But can you kind of tell us that that story? Yeah. So let me, can I preface it with two things? First, I want to say um, I'm not a member of the party. Uh, I'm not I, I haven't been since 2003. I'm a former Libertarian Party of Ohio chair, which I'm going to get into in a moment. Um, I, I was Harry Brown's press secretary. I did a, a variety of things with the party and I've continued right up until the present day. I've, I've been called upon to be, you know, to advise various candidacies, to help them with various things uh, all, along the way. I've been glad to do so. I, I wish that my state had ballot access because that's who I would vote for as libertarians. I, I, I root for and wish that the, the libertarian party would do well. Um, but I'm not into any of these these factions or or, or or different fights. So I'm coming in completely kind of neutral on on all of that. Um, I I uh, this, the uh, I don't remember the second thing was I want to say. So let's just get to your question. Um, in in 1996, um, when the when the campaign was over, I it was my first campaign. I couldn't believe how poorly Harry had done in the polls because. You know, this was the beginning of the internet and I would go to the web page constantly to check out, you know, is he going to be on TV? Is he going to be on radio? Didn't want to miss a single appearance that Harry was doing. Uh, Harry's the one that won me over to the party. As I said, I was a disgruntled conservative Republican. The party picked Bob Dole after winning Congress for the first time in 40 years um, and uh, with a contract with America. And they decided to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, a theme that you will hear again and pick Bob Dole to be their candidate. And I just couldn't go along with that. I just realized that they were full of it. And the principle mattered to me. And so I was looking for somebody who actually believed, uh, shared my values, at least most of my values, um, and was 
going to, to actually do what they said. And I discovered the Libertarian Party. They, they were on C-SPAN. I watched that weekend and I saw Harry Brown. And I had my you know, road to Damascus experience while he was on C-SPAN's Washington Journal the morning after uh, the nomination. Uh, so seeing how, how bad the result was on Election Day was really shocking to me. And I would do anything to get a hold of this letter. I would love to have this letter that I'm about to describe. Perry Willis was the national director of the party at the time. And he signed and sent out. He was a, a tremendous direct cop, male copywriter. He signed and sent out a letter explaining the following thing. Bill Clinton got this much, this many votes and it costs this much per vote. It costs this much for vote for Bob Dole. It costs this much for Ross Perot. And guess what? It costs this much per vote for the LP. This is how much they each spent. And this is what they each got. And the range was about 650 to 825 a piece at the time different era. And uh, so he said, you know, if we had uh, 400,000 donors to this party, we would be able to achieve parity. And what we need the first step to do that is to have a massive membership campaign. And they launched a program called Project Archimedes. I was so excited by what I read in that letter that I ran around and started telling everybody in Ohio, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to do. This is the game. This is the game. I met Perry in early 1997 at the national office, uh, went through. He had the overlays because back then it was all done by paper. Like they'd done this stuff. You know, these are the different demographic groups that make up the LP. And this is what the, this is what the party looks like. And they were going to try to do various types of targeting using direct mail as their initial tactic. I want to say something really super important that matters to anybody that wants to come along and criticize after. Project Archimedes was about membership recruitment. Lots of people think it was a direct mail program. Perry Willis's skill and ability at the time was direct mail. That was the technology and tool of the time. And that is where they started. But there was never any intent at all to stay just within direct mail. As new tactics uh, would arrive or as new opportunities would come up, they would end up going into um, uh, other stuff. And I'll, if we have time, I'll tell you about one of those. But direct mail was most of what they did to start off with. And so uh, Perry, uh, I'm sorry, Perry uh, sent this letter out. I started trumpeting it all over the place. I'd gone to see him at, in, in uh, his office and saw all the overlays on the table. And I got kind of the, you know, the, the, the strategy, the thinking. I really asked a lot of questions that day about what to do. And there was a second thing that they said was going to be really key to their success. So Steve Dosbach was the national chair at the time, and he had designed a program called Unified Membership, which allowed a revenue sharing one single membership with the national and the state party. These two factors would combine in the following way. And if you'll indulge me for just a moment. Can you, I, um, I, I apologize. Can you describe unified membership? Unified program? membership. So you pay $25 to, at the, at what I don't know what the current going rate is to be a member of the Libertarian Party. We have not kept up with inflation. So it's still $25. Yes. That's amazing. It should be, it should be triple that by now. So $25 was the membership fee at the time. And if, if instead of having separate state membership, you had one membership federal and state for every state you know no state was required to sign on to this thing but they also would miss out on some of the benefits of the program um every state signed on and there was anywhere from one to five dollars per month per member based on their giving level that was revenue shared back to the state on a monthly basis 
So in 1995, the year before I joined, a friend of mine went to the Libertarian Party convention. He comes home. He, he's got a bunch of documentation. In there is a treasury report. He invites me over to his house to tell me one story about something that happened that day. But I'm going through all this paperwork as he's talking. And I see the treasurer's report. The Libertarian Party of Ohio's treasury report had less than $10,000 in revenue for that year. In 1999, when I left to go to work for the Harry Brown campaign, this is late, late 1999, we had $45,000 in the bank. And that was after splitting 50-50 the cost of the first ballot petition drive we had done since 1982. That ballot petition drive would end up recruiting for, we, we started a recruitment program as well. As I was on my way out the door, we had some really great people working on this. Uh, we ended up recruiting 72 candidates across the state of Ohio. When we didn't have ballot status, we had one, precisely one in 1998. We had you, 72 candidates because of this. Do you mind if I uh, cut you off, what, uh, ask you one question in detail yes. there? When you say 72 candidates, what was like the makeup of that? Like, was that mostly local candidates? No, it was was 18, that 18 of 19 congressional districts. Um, uh, we had a U.S. Senate candidate. Uh, to help, you know, with the the, the federal uh, race that we were attempting to run, um, plus obviously the presidential campaign that year, and uh, so the result was that there was no, every libertarian in Ohio had at least two libertarians to vote for because of the top of the ticket, but no one uh, had less than two. Every as most people had three and four, and in my case, I had five back in my my home district. I was able to vote for five libertarians on election day. That's never happened again since. We, in fact, they never got to that level again late in the, I'm going to guess the 2010, 12 timeframe. I believe they got up into the forties in terms of number of candidates again, but they never got up to that level. Uh, Michael, you mentioned at the very beginning, how much money was raised. I want to correct fact checked and correct you. If you don't mind, the amount of money that was raised was more in real terms than the libertarian party has subsequently erased. Now, I don't know whether hundred percent for sure that's true in 2020, but I'm reasonably confident it is. Um, but if you adjust it for inflation, it's, it's, it's much, much more than the party's raised in any time since. Um, it was $3.2 million, I believe, or 3.6. I can't remember what the number was anymore that they raised just the national party, uh, at that time, uh, which is, you know, an amount that I think, you know, there's subsequent administrations that would have only dreamed of being able to do that much. So membership peaked uh, with Project Archimedes in the year 2000. Uh, that that was its ceiling. And, and then it came to an end and everybody forgot the story. So was there was there any overarching strategy? Like, obviously, it's we need as much membership as possible because that's what's going to fill the coffers, the, the 400,000 donors. But was there like a uh, an overall strategy on how to get these guys involved and and uh, something that's viable and all of that? Because like uh, I'm kind of trying to hint at what we're doing with Project Decentralized Revolution, because uh, that would be for me like what what to get this membership doing now. But was there any unified like strategy back then, or was it just get members? No, it was It didn't stop at just getting members because every member is is capable of doing something. And the idea was to constantly market to them as much as possible what we were doing, why it was being done at the federal level. And then states were being encouraged with their revenue sharing to do the same thing with what they were doing. And we had a lot more money, as I just reported. So we were able to do a much better job of communicating with people and planning and getting people involved and getting them excited. 
um, and we were able to run more candidates. There was kind of a sense that the states could figure stuff out for themselves, uh, although the National Party did put on uh, Success 97 and Success 99 conferences, which were just two-day conferences that were designed to kind of train everybody and kind of, you know, how to write a press release, how to, you know, uh, how to raise your initial uh, ten or $100,000, depending on what kind of campaign you were running. Um, so some of that stuff was, was those support mechanisms were there. There were special newsletters as well that were sent out at the time for various types of activities, uh, uh, you know, coming out of the national office, but they weren't uh, really managing what was happening in the States in the same way. I, I, we, I, I, from my perspective, Michael, I didn't feel like we needed it. I mean, we, we took, uh, we went from running one candidate in 1998 to running 72 in 2000. Clearly, we were doing something right. We just needed the resources. And with the resources came more energy and more people. And with more people came more money. And with more money, I mean, it wasn't just the revenue sharing we were getting. It was the fact that we were also able to start writing fundraising letters to these people. Our cost per mailing went down. Our, you know, per, per piece went down. Every, it, just, it got easier and easier to, to, to do the things that we needed to do. And it was going in the right direction. And it's really unfortunate that it got arrested. So like when, when you describe it, it's like, all right, home run. Uh, let's keep doing it. Let's scale up all of that kind of stuff. Now in, in true LP fashion, they'll aim for their foot and shoot themselves in the face. Uh, but how did this stop? I mean, if it, if it was such this home run, like how, what happened? So I shared with you my favorite Bible verse. Do you remember what it was? You caught me. I'm sorry. For God so loved the world that he didn't send a committee. Yes. <laughs> Uh, when you try to, you know, you guys are experiencing this and lots of people just simply, uh, they think that everybody else is the bad guy and everybody else is trying, everybody's trying to figure out how to make this work. Right. And the truth of the matter is that the incentives, incentive structure of a collectively managed organization with its own Politburo, excuse me, national committee is that it, uh, gets stuck in, uh, in, in, in political incentives that are inherently anti-entrepreneurial and, uh, everybody wants to get some credit. Everybody wants to get their person as chair. Everybody wants to get their person's nominee. And there can only be one of those things. So it creates kind of this, this competition that goes on uh, and not a healthy kind of competition, not a market-based kind of competition. And, and just like that, you know, we had people at the time who were very critical of, of what we were doing. Um, and I do consider myself part of this group because it came to work. Perry Willis was ended up being Harry Brown's campaign manager. Uh, Harry Brown signed some of those letters that we sent out via Archimedes. He was very much a fan of it. He went out and and did large dollar fundraising on behalf of the program to help get it launched. Uh, and Steve Dosbach was the the national chair. And these these are people who you know Harry's obviously passed, but uh, I'm you know I've been in touch with Steve as recently as today. I'm uh, and Perry as recently as as today. I mean these are people that are still a part of my life, uh, and I worked with them, so I understand them and appreciate them. And I, I you know <laughs> what ended up happening was to put it real simple is that uh, they had a bad mailing went badly. Um, it lost a lot of money. You know, you go out, you try some things like the program was growing, the party's growing, but in late 1999, there was a bad mailing. And, uh, at the time, the way the party was governed, there was a five person executive committee that was a subset of the national committee. And, uh, the treasurer, uh, moved, uh, and got support from two other members of those five to put a reserve policy in place requiring any future mailings to be pre-funded 100% in advance with a bonus, a little supplement on top, uh, so that uh, they, the mailing basically came to a halt. The program basically stopped. It's not and, like and that this, one 
mailing went so bad that the entire program had a negative net, right? See, like, you, you, you would think so. But then, you know, after having watched what happened and then watched how like m numbers went flat in 2000 when they should have gone up dramatically more, uh, they turned around in 2001 and another one of the people who voted for uh, this proposal, I mean, it's basically the same guys, decided that we needed to have a strategic planning process. So they they doubled the number of national committee meetings they had. They went all around the country and had these additional meetings where they plotted and planned in a group what they were going to do. And this plan, I like to point out that if everything is your focus, nothing is, uh, emerged with six priorities and 20 different tactics that were their focus for the next four years. And then they proceeded to do none of it because it was too many things and nobody actually owned the plan like Archimedes was owned by Perry Willis and, and, and Steve Dosbach. And so instead of doing what had been working so well, they stopped doing it. And I wish I could say this is the end of the story, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with the fact that this got sabotaged by a member who didn't like uh, Perry in particular. Um, it doesn't matter that that's what happened. It also doesn't matter that they ever, you know, maybe you think everybody just kind of forgot, but over the years, this prod, this, this story has come up again and again and again, and more so in the last five to seven years, um, Karen Ann Harlow's, uh, went and did a, you know, started doing an archiving project and she came across all these documents and found these numbers and started waving them around hysterically going, what happened here? What happened here? And began telling this story to people. You wouldn't believe the numbers that they got. And so people became a little bit aware for a time, but the national chair that was in at that time said, well, we couldn't keep Archimedes going because of the passage of McCain-Feingold in 2002. That, uh, you know, when it was, when the Supreme Court ruled in 2003, we were stuck. We couldn't actually implement this program. Well, that's just absolutely not true. And then a subsequent chair, a more recent chair, uh, dredged up a charge that was used by the likes of the treasurer at the time uh, of 2000 when they put a reserve policy on top of all this. He called it a mail order party. But I would encourage you to think to what I just told you about what happened in my own state in Ohio. There wasn't no mail order party. We went from one candidate to 72. We went from 9,000 to $45,000. Um, and I could go on. We had double the number of, of organized county chapters, uh, triple the number of organized counties. I mean, like it, it just across the board, everything was bigger. Everything was better. It was far from mail order. It was it was a very successful idea. So uh, I, you know, I'm telling you this now because I resent having uh, my friends lied about. And it's and it's been it's even worse than what I'm telling you, because uh, no good deed can go unpunished. In 2001, the other thing that the party decided it needed to do that year was uh, uh, prosecute Perry uh, for violating a minor office policy in 1995 and 96. He was no longer there. He was no longer in the office. Uh, they decided they needed to spend having a full investigation into this, take many months of attacking. And the end result was they said that for the next five years, they couldn't have any affiliation. Uh, the party could not do any business whatsoever with a, a, what was called a Willis organization. They censured Harry Brown um, as well. And I became the really? CEO. Yes. And I became the CEO of, uh, the American Liberty Foundation, Perry stepped down completely and stepped away. And they said, nah, we still suspect that you're under Perry's spell. So come back and talk to us in a couple of years. So we couldn't even continue to use the list that Harry built uh, to build the American Liberty Foundation. And so this, this actually affected us pretty personally. It affected Perry. It affected Harry, although Harry seemed to, to bounce back the best from it. Uh, it affected me and my family and our income at the time. And we hadn't done anything wrong. And none of this was really necessary.
And so I would encourage most people to, to look for the good in the people that are in the party with you, even when you think that they disagree with you. Disagreeing isn't a sin. It's not a crime. Um, and and uh, yes, committees are the worst at getting stuff done. There's just, uh, in fact, they're counterproductive to getting stuff done. Yeah. But the fact that there were people that basically lay in wait for the first opportunity that they could to take out this program, and that for 23 years now, nobody has been able to get this restarted, is just extraordinary to me. And I, I applaud you, Michael, for, for asking me to do this. This is only the second time I've been asked to do this in 23 years. So... Uh, I will say what what my motivation is. Um, I, I think I said it in that reason interview is that we as the caucus, we have always said that we we want to kind of unify the Libertarian Party and the, and the Liberty Movement. And there is a lot more people in the Liberty Movement. Um, and I think we kind of have proof of concept that the party uh, can be used as like this network, uh, to, like within the movement and, and kind of have its own culture to build something up from to attract that movement. So then just by, you know, taking it from there, the health of the, the party would be membership because that that is tantamount. In, it, that's that's essentially the, how you measure hearts and minds, people that you're getting in, in the party and, and, and willing to put a little bit of skin in the game. Twenty five bucks, you know, in twenty, twenty three dollars. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it would have to be that because and again, this goes also goes back to Project Decentralized Revolution, which long story short is is our plan. Uh, our strategy to like use the the presidential race and the and the national messaging to get people in involved in the party on our messaging, um, and then funnel them down in specifically into city council, mayor, and school board races where they can nullify the feds. You know, and and you know I won't bore you with all the details on like the year over year stuff, but um, that's that's the general idea. So we've always our goal was always membership. You know, not vote chasing, trying to get membership in. Um, you know, and, and there is a changing of the guard right now. There's a, a bit of a, I would say, a demographic shift. Uh, but I'm very excited about what could happen from the, the presidential race this year, because I happen to think that whoever that candidate is, if they're even halfway decent, they're going to get in front of more people than any Libertarian Party candidate has ever been in front of because of the the nature of like the crumbling nature of the media and the ascendant nature of the of the podcast paradigm. Um, yeah. So if I could just add one thing, just based on off of what you said there. Um, and I was asked a question earlier that this relates to as well. You know, if 25 got somebody in the door, but the expectation, the goal was to average $100 per member. That was the goal. So there, there was some attempt to develop people who were capable of giving 1000 and 10000 and 25000 depending on what the committee is that you're going to be having them give to and so forth. There was an attempt to get that average up. There was a, also a very serious attempt, and we followed this exact same playbook when we started Downsize DC in 2004, um, to try to get as many pledgers as possible, to build up the pledge base. That was a really, really important part of, uh, of the funding model that was pursued at that time, was people sending monthly credit card pledges. And so uh, the other part of, then, of this then that, that follows, based on what you just said, is that votes are a one-off thing, yep. and they're very Sisyphean. The rock rolls all the way back down to the bottom of the hill and you have to start all over again pushing it up. The question becomes, do you have anybody pushing with you? And um, there's another famous uh, Libertarian Party figure that is arguing that the votes are the way is the leader that brings people in. And if that were true, and I am a huge fan of Gary Johnson, and I think he is a gem of a human being. Um, but I uh, if the votes were the, the indicator, then everything would have been up after 
the 2016 race because that was clearly the record. Um, but you, again, you got to push that rock all the way up the hill. Who's pushing with you? In 2000, you brought up Harry Brown's vote total. I think we should put this in context. Uh, Harry Brown was that uh, we had what I jokingly called at the time the third party ghetto. So Ralph Nader was the most famous third party candidate, and got the most media coverage. He was tier one. So he was the third place candidate, as it were. Then all of the rest of the candidates, which included Patrick Buchanan, who was well known from television, uh, Harry Brown, who had been a former bestselling author and previously ran for president, Howard Phillips with the Constitution Party and John Hagelin. Uh, with the National Law Party. And all of these campaigns, uh, I think the Constitution was on 38 or 40. I don't remember state ballots at the time. Natural Law was on 42 or 43 state ballots. Uh, Green was on 46 or 47. Reform was about the same. I think they were 48. We were 50, right? This was, there were, so what I'm saying is there was a lot of competition at the third party level. Uh, the law has continued to change, not in a good way, by the way, making it harder for those other parties to survive, leaving only four at present uh, total parties in the country, Republican, Democrat, Green and Libertarian. That's it. That's the whole like those other parties don't exist anymore. And so uh, um, if votes were the thing that would have made the difference, then we should have not had as many members as we had uh, uh, and we shouldn't have had as much money as we had. If we have the more money, if we have the memberships, all the things you want, the candidates, the volunteers, the campaign managers, the campaign treasurers, uh, the graphic designers, the people who are going and knocking on doors, the people who are making phone calls and handling texts, all that stuff goes up. And of course, the money goes up. The money's the last indicator. But if you before the votes, but if that money is going up, that's people really parting with something that they value. They're saying, I'm placing my bet on this thing. I believe in this thing. They're not just joining. They're saying, I believe in it. And that was the, the way that we built up the, the we're building up the necessary army to get there. Yeah. I, a, I mean, on. I, well, go ahead. I have a question after you're done, Mike, but I have a my, mine was just yeah. more a comment. Um is that I, I was doing some donor research not that long ago and I was actually looking at Harry Brown's list or people on Harry's Brown on Harry Brown's list and seeing uh, who if anybody is still giving to federal level politics period they could be given to Democrats for all I care did they give to Harry Brown and they're still giving to federal level politics and there were so many people that I saw where they gave a thousand dollars to Harry Brown and which was the limit at the time. Right. And and uh, they, they gave a thousand dollars to Harry Brown and they never gave again to that. That was that was the sum total of their entire federal level political donation history. Um, That's interesting. Or 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 I saw some other stories or uh, well, I shouldn't say stories. I'm kind of filling in gaps. But I saw some other examples where, you know, maybe they gave a thousand dollars to Harry Brown, never gave again until 2020. And then they started giving to Republicans, but they never gave more than three hundred dollars to any one Republican. So that to me says that. You know, they uh, they got woken up by the COVID thing and, you know, opted to give to Republicans to try to do something about it in their mm -hmm. minds, at least. But, but they're not as bought in as they were for Harry. And so they're probably just looking for a cool like I actually think there might still be some potential in there if a cool enough opportunity were to come along. Yeah. Uh, I, my question was this. So, like, I, I uh, Jim, I our past never crossed in Ohio, but I got involved with the LPO and like. 2010 and i was the state central committee chairman not long after that for a few years and I, I do remember people talking about project archimedes then and for the most part it was a pretty positive thing but it was always sort of described as like a you know male yeah Ke marketing. kevin was your chair at that time right yeah he was the XCOM chair great guy kevin He's Edler. very dynamic 
yeah, I like Kevin uh, a lot. And um, so the 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 thinking was like, oh, well, we need to go back to something like that. But it, it was described as the the male marketing aspect of it. It, it wasn't mentioned pejoratively, but I, I think it's funny that some people use that as a pejorative against that because if you look at direct male marketing. That's what built the conservative movement, really. I think even in the seventies and back, maybe even to the late sixties, was yes. it Richard Vickery? Is that the yes, guy's starts name? Starts off sending a bunch of gals at, to. I don't remember what the governing agency because the FEC didn't exist yet, but he sent mm-hmm. them over to get everything was on index cards in a, yep. in a file, and they would just take out the cards and they would write down, and they're handwriting these notes and then taking them out of the office, and they they didn't know what these women were doing. He was hiring all these temps to go in and do this, and that is how he built the very first. Uh, direct mail list and and they used it not just to raise money they used it to get around the the regime media at the time yep. because the media was anti uh, their candidates are so like we're going to go direct to our people and tell them the story as we see it and so everything that you're seeing all the conservative websites all the conservative shows the actual the the advent of fox news all that has a precedent that goes back to that card file well the heritage heritage foundation all that stuff. every bit yeah. of it yep every bit of it the think tanks so, all of it so my question was uh, that that was as high tech uh, as it got then mm-hmm. in the 70s, 80s, 90s to get around the, the mainstream media. And, you know, that the Internet was still in 2001. It was still people weren't quite ready to give their credit cards. I worked at a bookstore in 1999 and people would come in. It was a Borders bookstore. They would come in with a printout from the website asking us to order the book because they didn't trust uh, to give the internet their, their credit card number. Yeah. Yeah. Here we are in 2023. So given that that's what you guys were doing, uh, 23 years ago, give or take, what would a project Archimedes update in 2023, 2024? Yeah. Great. Look question. like, yeah. Great question. So, uh, first off, uh, it was already starting to morph before the two, the nineties were over. And, uh, there was a, a know your customer is something that we got as part of our law now. Uh, it's a banking regulation uh, that came out of the Patriot Act, but it wasn't that wasn't the very first time that it had been run up the flagpole. Uh, they tried in the late 90s to pass know your customer. Uh, the Libertarian Party uh, put up a petition, an online petition form. I think this is 1999 circa. Uh, and they re- uh, they recruited uh, within the space of, I don't know, like a week or two weeks, they recruited 167,000 leads off of that, which was, you know, great, right? What are you going to, so we got all these emails and email was the technology that was emerging at the time. Uh, how do we communicate with these people? Unfortunately, they'd written too restrictive a terms of service because they thought if they didn't pro- provide enough privacy protection, that people wouldn't sign the form. So it was kind of hard to kind of take that to the next level and do other things with that list. Um, but they wanted to do more of those kind of things. Their second experiment didn't go anywhere near as well. And so th- again, funding issues, you know, got this reserve policy, you know, we're not going to fund that until you have that pre-funded as well. But uh, uh, they were already starting to evolve their thinking as to how they were going to go about doing it. Um, The tools today are so much better. So, you know, I start off saying I'm in Perry Willis's office. If you remember earlier in the story, uh, you know, he had it on his coffee table in in his office spread out over top of it all the overlays, they were printed and they were stapled in the corner, this, you know, covering the entire table. It's absurd to think about this this way. Uh, those same data firms today uh, collect uh, 1,800 fields worth of information on human beings. They know where you were, when you were there. If you took your phone with you any place, they know what store you just came from and what store you went to next. 
Um, they know a whole lot about your shopping history and everything else. The amount of data that's out there and the ability to make those overlays is just extraordinary um, in comparison. Um, and there are many more tools with which to communicate. Not only do you have email, which is, by the way, almost passe now, um, but you have uh, the ability to text and you have the ability, even with the regulations that the government's put on, the uh, the Jorgensen campaign was beginning to test out how to uh, reach uh, they, they got a list through L2. You probably know more about this, Michael, but they got a list and they started texting people and they used, they had volunteers that knew how to do this correctly uh, because you have to do this individually, but they were able to convert people into the campaign and the, uh, the, the campaign was paying for itself. It was breaking even, which you would do every day of the week if you could keep getting more voters and more money, right? Uh, the, all, the, the good news on treasury reports, that's good news on your, uh, on election day. So they, they, they were, uh, they got that process started. Unfortunately, they didn't have the infrastructure to do it until the very last stages, uh, of the campaign. Uh, I, I, you know, the idea here was to make sure that we were doing something between campaigns that kept making the party grow. Um, so there's uh, Facebook advertising. I don't know uh, like what the exact status of that is right now. Um, but it was a very big deal during the previous uh, decade. And it's something that would have actually been very effective. There's just a number of different ways that this can be done now. And there's people who continue to follow this because one of the ironies of life is that as we, uh, as technology be expands, new opportunities are created. So, you know, there's experts in all of these tiny niches now where it used to be that one person knew how to do all of this stuff, but it's all too specialized right now for me to be able to tell you specifically what it would be. But there are people that are out there that this is what they do for a living. They know how to, how to turn and get results and, and bring in th those efforts. It's a prospecting campaign. That's what it is to bring in more people who uh, the model that Perry followed, he called discovery before persuasion. So discovery means he's not trying to convert people. He's not trying to get people to believe something they didn't believe before. He's trying to present them with something that when they hear it, they go, oh my gosh, that's me. Oh my gosh, that's right. Oh, that's who I am. Right. And, and once you get big enough, then you start to move into the persuasion they never came anywhere near getting through the number of people that are potentially able to be discovered. In 2018, downsizedc.org put out a blog post. We've referred to it a whole bunch of times since, uh, laying out how many libertarians are in the country. And it depends on how you want to slice this up. We're talking small L at the moment. These are people who basically have the classical liberal belief package. And that number, depending on where you put it conservatively, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 million. And it could be as high as 65 million. 25 million, let's just put it at that level. If we could find if we could find out who those people were and we could reach out and contact every single one of them, what kind of party could we build out of it? Could we build a 1 million or 2 million party? You know, six, if you would have been in the 2016 Republican primary, um, there's an old joke about I don't have to outrun that has a punchline that says, I don't have to outrun you. I only have to out, I only have, I'm sorry, the bear, I only have to outrun you. Um, if you wanted to be the person that was the last competitor to Donald Trump, you only needed just under 8 million people to vote for you in the primary. I mean, it's just, it's extraordinary for me to think about all these different little segments of, of political strategy where we could, we could be there. We could be at a level very quickly. Uh, and we're not because we're not actually doing anything to, to build something that is, that is ongoing, substantial, that helps uh, push the rock up the hill. So, I guess the easy way to put that is we would need a comprehensive data gathering and, and uh, surveying strategy. Is that a, a good broad overgeneralization? 
close. I think the other thing you would need to add is you would have to have some way of of compelling uh, of compelling content that you would put to them that it caused them to give you response. They would agree to sign up and keep getting, you know, give you permission to keep communicating with them. They're very, they're interested in, in what you're offering. But yes, that's, I think that that is a good way of putting it. Yeah, because I, I truly believe that the the number of people who meet that kind of minimum small L threshold uh, is is more than ever. I, I really, truly believe that. And, and going back to this crumbling media ascendant podcast thing, you know, you look at Joe Rogan. Um, mm-hmm. Joe Rogan voted for Joe Jorgensen. He voted for Gary Johnson. He appeared on Jay Leno with Ron Paul wearing Ron Paul gear as a, as a yes, fanboy. I was watching that night. Yeah. Uh, so that's the biggest show in the world who has consistently voted libertarian. Um, you know, and uh, he has a lot of libertarian ideas. You look at Tim Pool, you know, two, three million listeners a night. Uh, mostly libertarian ideas, many libertarian guests. Patrick Bet David, another giant podcast. Uh, many, many libertarian ideas. He doesn't identify as a libertarian, but many, many libertarian ideas. Way more than in the traditional media sphere. And I love what you're saying. I love what you're saying. So let me tell you a little quick story. In 1996, during the campaign, Perry Willis was writing the fundraising letters. That's part of what he got in trouble for. Um, In 1996, uh, they had started a program called Operation Drumbeat. And the idea of Operation Drumbeat, Harry preferred to be on radio talk shows. That was the technology of the time. And he didn't have to worry about somebody in print, you know, butchering his message. He could communicate directly with the voters through talk radio. So he did a lot of talk radio. Operation Drumbeat was the idea. Let's say I've been on Aaron's show. Aaron's the host. Um, but I'm not going to be on Aaron's show tomorrow or the day after or next week or next year or next month. Like I'm going to be out doing other shows. Now I'm going to go on Michael's and, and I'm going to keep going on these different shows. And what was supposed to happen was Aaron, while I'm not there anymore, would keep talking about my campaign. He would say, well, I'm in it for Harry Brown. I'm supporting Harry Brown. I want Harry Brown in those debates. That was what he was supposed to do. And we were successful in getting some of that to begin to happen. Um, the other thing that was done, the technology in 1996, this is how far things have come. The technology in 1996 was to give out an 800 number. And Harry had such incredible message discipline that he did not let an interview pass without at least once, but usually more than once giving out that 800 number. Every time somebody got called that 800 number, a package of information was put in the mail to them and it was sent to them. Now we wouldn't have to do the manual manning of an 800 number anymore we wouldn't have to do uh the package in fact by 2000 it was already the new technology was already to say your domain url so it was harrybrown2000.org harrybrown2000.org he would say this in every interview as often as he possibly could but by 2004 and uh, more like six and eight that wasn't the technology anymore it was now google right google the candidate right you could find them that way the point is that if you are prepared and you give them the information, I mean, instant, they want it right away, that is going to get them engaged. Uh, you can take advantage of your campaigns. The campaigns should be doing that. So let's apply this to Joe Rogan. Let's apply this to Tim Pool. Uh, the candidate coming on there should be very, very explicit and clear that what we want you to do right now, here's the action we want you to take. I'm not asking you to vote for me. The first thing I'm really asking you to do, Michael, is contact us we have information we want to send you. We want to send you some stuff to give you some more information. Maybe you have questions about the campaign. You'll find them answered here at our website. Like to get people to come and get that information and begin following all the channels where the campaign is active and and doing stuff, which today we have so many different ways to do that instantly and on the scene in ways that didn't exist back then. I really think in a lot of ways, the opportunity is better now than it was back then. 
it's a lot more cost effective to do all this stuff. Well, I'm sure I'll be following up with you uh, to do some brainstorming. Uh, I um, I got a question from the chat here. Back when all this was going on and we had all these higher uh, membership numbers, what was the messaging like? Was it was it as the kids might call it today based? It was based. Uh, let me give you a sample. <laughs> let me give you a sample of it. Um, first off, Harry Brown showed up wearing a blue suit, red tie, white shirt. He had white hair. He was six foot four. Uh, he looked like he walked out of central casting for the part. Uh, second, he was a best-selling writer. And as I told you before, he was a very, uh, I, I didn't mention this. He was a very, very good writer and, uh, he really knew how to turn a phrase. And so he focused on making sure that he delivered and crafted the best possible sound bites that he'd rehearsed these sound bites and he was prepared. He didn't let those opportunities pass him. And then how did he communicate? Well, first off, his message was that government doesn't work. And it would sound something like this. Uh, government doesn't work. Uh, it can't, it doesn't protect you it, uh, from, from, from poisons or, or, or get the mail delivered to you on time. Um, what it does instead, government's good at one thing. It breaks both of your legs, hands you a pair of crutches, says, see, without us, you wouldn't be able to walk. Uh, he would offer something he called his great libertarian offer. He would ask people, would you be willing to give up your favorite federal government program if it meant never having to pay income tax again? Now, of course, a lot of people, their response would be, wait a minute, I can't even think of a favorite program. But if they could, even in the case that they could, yes, that's actually a pretty good bargain. They would be willing to do that. Um, he promised he's the very first candidate that did this. There's been other people have done it since even outside of the Libertarian Party. But he has said that on his first day in office, he would pardon all nonviolent drug offenders in federal prison on the very first day. It was he would have it done before lunch. Uh, that was going to be the first thing that he was going to do. And uh, uh, again and again and again, he was, in fact, very radical. It was we got criticized at the time because, you know, there was not this same division that you have now between pragmatists and, and, and I don't, you know, Mises or whatever uh, the, the arrangements are now. Uh, uh, he was somebody that would would have been messaging that you would have loved in a suit and a presentation that uh, the, the, the deepest pragmatists would have loved. The campaign was significant and professional. We had a full staff. We were putting him on, on air. I'm proud to say we booked over 830 interviews for him in a 10-month period. Um, and on, it was on you know the best media we could get at the time. Now, Gary had whole new opportunities in 2016. It's a different world uh, that he was uh, granted. Uh, but you know we, we had a, a really credible campaign that was doing significant work, raising money and spending it. Uh, pretty efficiently to get a lot of attention, uh, media attention on the message. So it should have, there should have been some kind of follow-up that would have resulted in us continuing to grow is my main point today. Yeah, this is, and this is something I've, I've noticed and I, I really would like, I, I hope that the Mises caucus can, can kind of fix <laughs> is, is that um, you get these presidential campaigns and then money starts coming in, activities going up, messaging is going out, people are coming in. And then these people come in and they're very bright eyed. They're like, oh, we're getting in the debates. This is going to be the year we get 15%. And then nobody kind of levels with them and like, listen, dude, it, I, I, I appreciate the enthusiasm, but it doesn't work that way. And then, then we get 2% or whatever. And the money, the campaign stops, the money stops. So all the activity stops, everything shuts down. And then this person goes, what the frig did I just, you yep. know what I mean? Like, yep. and, and then it's it was my experience in 1996. And in fact, you know, I'll put out an open call. I've asked numerous times of people over the years, including Karen Ann, when she was doing all this uh, archival work, nobody seems to have that letter. 
that letter came out in roughly January of 97, maybe as early as December 96, uh, explaining what they were going to do. It might've been February. I don't know, but it's in that time frame there at the end of 96, beginning of 97. I would love to have that letter because that letter really in a lot of ways changed my life. Like, yes, I was involved in the campaign and I mean, I'm sorry, supporting the campaign and a member of the Libertarian Party. And I was already starting to organize in my own county uh, right off the bat. But when I read that letter, I realized this is this is something to sign on to. And the next few years of my life uh, led to where I'm sitting here today talking to you, led to the career that I, the incredible career that I've had uh, working in the Libertarian movement, being able to do some very extraordinary things with with really great people along the way. And and chief of those, obviously, was Perry Willis, because Perry Willis ended up being my partner at um, Downsize DC. Uh, and uh, Steve Dosbach was one of my co-founders of that. He's the one that actually coined the phrase, the name that that we picked for the organization. So it's, it's really, um, yeah, Sergio's right. I mean, you have to, uh, you have to contact these people and have them engaged regularly too. You got to keep putting new good news in front of them. The, the method that Perry used on his fundraising letters to those, uh, audiences back in those days was what was called progress and plans. And everywhere I've been since every group that I've consulted with, you read my bio at the beginning of the show, I'm involved in a lot of different organizations. I'm always telling them progress and plans, progress and plans. Treat your donors like adults. Tell them, here's our strategy. Here's what we're going to do. Here's why we're doing what we're about to do. And here's what it's going to cost. And then start to do it. And then if it works, uh, tell them, hey, you know, it's really working. We need more money so we can ramp it up to, to work. Or if it didn't work, tell them what you why you didn't think it worked. Tell them what you learned from it and what you're going to do next as a result of that. That builds trust and confidence. And over time, uh, they want to give you more money. So, you know, Archimedes is up and running and uh, Andy Beal uh, cut a check. It came out of the blue. Nobody had called him on the phone for $100,000. It just arrived in the office one day. And he's like, you know, keep up the work you're doing on Project Archimedes. Steve Fox emerged during those days, uh, another donor that was big in that era and big in our, our the starting of American Liberty Foundation. Um these people, you know, if you start to do the right things, you start to, you know, serendipities begin to kick in because you're just consistently showing up every day, doing your work and doing the right thing. Um, trying to fix some committee, arguing with some other person, none of that's going to matter. In fact, it won't even matter to you five years from now, but the stuff that we could do to, to build the party, to bring in new members and start, you know, uh, impacting elections. Well, that, that could be a big deal. That could make, that could be a lifetime thing. Yeah, absolutely agreed, man. <clears throat> we're uh, we're trying to build it. Uh, there's, as you know, there's not much infrastructure. There's not much uh, institutional knowledge and all that. But uh, there's a lot of passion. There's a lot of heart. Uh, I think we got some good candidates coming up. I think we got a good strategy, uh, and we are seeing results. I mean, I I had pointed out. Uh, I'm not going to remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it was something like. I'm just going to throw numbers out there. It, it was some very large number of, of the candidates who run as libertarian uh, run for offices other than local. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a grand total of like, like less than like maybe 4% of those that ran for those races won. And, and you're talking, you know, uh, County at best. Um, maybe you get a state house, you know, once in a blue moon, but then something like 60% of the people who ran local won. And, and that's, I think, a big part of it, too, because I, I firmly believe that not only if we serve the content and, and bring people in on the message, that if we can do that and funnel them into something that is effective, like those high, higher uh, win races. And, and I don't mean like 
you know, like in Pennsylvania, they, they were doing maneuvers to try to get people elected to like elections inspector and all of this stuff. And I got elected as an elections inspector and promptly resigned because it was useless. Like I can't affect Liberty with that. And, and so I'm talking specifically, like I said, city council, mayor, school board, but I believe that once you go around and you knock doors at that local level, you're the, the organic culture is what you are actually uh, interacting with so that we can start to build up societal trust. So like we can use the messaging and stuff like that to bring people in, funnel them down in these pockets and then build societal trust while knocking doors at the local community, become leaders in that local. And then, I mean, who knows if you, if you did this and it worked for even 10 years, you could end up with like a thousand city councilors. You start to shoot up into some state house races. I mean, the, the margins on some of these state houses, if you get three, four, you know, you could basically say, there's not one thing that preserves civil rights in that bill, Democrats. No, there's no there's no cut in spending in this budget, Republicans. No, you know, like and, you know, but I think uh, I, I'm also a big believer that nihilism is a big problem in our movement. I, I, I think people um, agree with libertarianism, but they don't believe in it. Uh, they don't they don't believe that they can actually fundamentally do anything about the situation that we're in. And that's that's a big fight, too. Why do you think they think feel that way? Uh, I think they 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 feel that there hasn't been any results and we can't stop like that. There's been nothing to stop the the onslaught. Now, I try to point out like there are absolutely cases. You know, you look at uh, you look at Utah. They have gold and silver as legal currency during COVID. You had sheriffs who are, you know, saying, no, we're not enforcing this stuff here. There's all this kind of, you know, you do have weed legalization at the at the state level or at the local level, meaning that the concept of- Which started with libertarians, by the way, in California. Right, exactly. And and which means that the concept can work. We just have to dedicate to it. Um, I'm, I'm a little ambivalent on it. I think people, on one hand, uh, they're making excuses, frankly. I think people love to make excuses to not get up off their ass and go and knock doors because it sucks. <laughs> Like it, it, you know, anybody who has done ballot petition work as a libertarian knows that it sucks and you get you get 10 no's for everyone. Yes. And, and it sucks. And it's it's easy to create excuses to not do that. I think it's equal parts that and and uh, just not seeing results. And I think the result that comes from a uh, overall lack of good strategy, whether that's messaging, whether that's political strategy, whether that's uh, recruitment strategy, you you name it. Can, can I uh, throw out an interrogatory right now? Because I'm curious sure. about something and the status of it, because I know what it was in 2020. So I'm curious what is happening now. Um, does the Libertarian National Party have a list of everybody that is registered Libertarian in their office? Like, you know, their names, you know, their addresses, you know how to contact them. If they don't, I know that I, I want to say they do, but I know I know at the very, very least they are working with L2 to get a whole assortment of data. I don't want to okay. say too much that that hasn't been public, but yes. Okay. Because, you know, uh, the model here, where you want to get, if you want to get, you know, we were talking earlier about the fact that there could be anywhere between 25 and 65 million of us. And that was a result of 10 different surveys that happened during the teens, uh, the, when we put that report in 2018. So maybe I, I agree with you, Michael. I actually think the opportunity is even better now than it was in 2018 for all the reasons that you laid out. But in 2020, uh, I can't remember the gentleman's last name, but his first name was Brad. He was originally Trump's campaign manager. And they had set a goal. It was an extraordinary goal. They were going to identify every single one of his voters by name before Election Day. They were going to know who was voting for him. They were going to have him in a list. 
and everything that they did was about the list. So let's say you were going to go to uh, one of those rallies. Those rallies were all about lead generation. They were capturing people's information on their cell phones through an app, right? Oh, by that, Aaron, that's another answer to your question. Apps, apps is a, a really, a, thank you. That's his name. Uh, knowing- I'll be calling Sergio sometime oh, in the next week. Or Sergio's so. great. Sergio's wonderful. <laughs> Um, I'm, we're trying, I'm trying to uh, get a project going with Sergio now. I'm looking for an excuse actually. Um, the, uh, but, but getting th that was totally about lead generation. They wanted to know every single person by name that was going to support the campaign. And that's kind of the mentality is that we're always going to be growing, but we always are going to be building and we're always going to be knowing who it is. So you're talking about knocking on doors. The reason I thought of this is you're talking about knocking on doors. Knocking on doors is something you should really only, I mean, you're going to do it again, forget out the vote and so forth the best that you can. But it really is only something that should have to be done really foundationally once. Because if you capture the lead and you find out who those people were and you continue to communicate with them on an ongoing basis, you learn more and more about them. You can get them really engaged and you can build something. And to the degree that you can build something in a given area where you're knocked on the doors, you know, maybe even show some of these people, hey, you know, uh, um, you know, Brandy lives right next door to you, Michael. Did you realize that she's a libertarian? Right. You know, that would be exciting news. A lot of people don't realize they feel alone. You might be able to take away some of that loneliness and say, wait a minute, you're not alone. There's other people in your neighborhood that feel exactly the same way you do. Wait a minute. Maybe y'all should get to meet each other. Or we should introduce you somehow. Like you should be able to create some of those synergies. So knocking on the doors, I agree with it. But if next year you're going to ask me to go knock on doors again, if you're going to ask me to do it in primary and general election season again and again and again, and, and we don't have results to show for it every single time that are just like stellar. Oh, man, how many times are most people going to want to do that? It's again, it's Sisyphus. It's pushing that rock up the hill. We should be trying to figure out how to take things so that we don't have to do that again. Yeah, no, that's a good point or a way to capture that data where it's like, well, if somebody signed the petition, maybe they're over open minded. You know what I mean? Like that could be in and of itself a lead. And I don't know. I don't know if that's ever even been started either. Uh, <laughs> um. Brandy's right. been quiet. What's up? What are you getting out of this, Brandy? No, I, I find this information very, very interesting. I, I, I'm part of the board on Massachusetts, so I find this all really intriguing. I did see someone comment. It says, I do not want to be on any list. And so when I was uh, working the Libertarian booth at Porkfest and trying to get people to sign up for a membership, I had a lot of people being like, I don't want to be on a list. I don't want to be on it. And I, I was getting that often, like that response. I don't know is, if that comes from some sort well, of like. But guess line. what? So we're all on a we're yeah, all, we're all on, on a list. So we're all on all kinds of lists. Unless that person I'll just go to L, some, I'll just go to L two. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> unless that person did some kind of really fancy tack, and I and I mean really, they got to go out of their way. Just texting that message just now, they already put themselves on the list, right? Yeah. They know well, that they're true. listening or communicating with this podcast. Mm. Yeah, it's a YouTube, and I'm not picking on the person. That's why we're not putting his name on the screen. But, like, you, if you have a YouTube account and you do things on there, like, you, I mean, it's funny that, like, you know, what shows up in my YouTube feed, you know, stuff I <laughs> yes. talk about and stuff. It's just it's they know they know exactly what I want at different times of the day and stuff. So, like, yeah, you're on a list. You might as well, if you want to be involved in a movement, then – you know, a small price to pay is getting some texts and emails and you can always unsubscribe, but, uh, and which you can do at takehumanaction.com. You can get on our, on our mailing list there. Um, and people unsubscribe all the time, but we have more than 20,000 people and we have a pretty good open rate and we have had success, uh, uh, doing that. 
and we're, we've been trying to do just what you said is like, you know, tell them what we're doing and what we're planning on doing. And it, and it seems to be, seems to be working. Uh, slow but steady. Yeah, and be, by the way, Aaron, be, I can't stress this enough. Be honest with the failings or the things that aren't working. Tell them, hey, yes. we tried this. We thought it would work. It didn't work, right? Because yep. that causes your trust to shoot up. Like, wait a minute. They're going to be straight with me, right? Yep. And so when things start to work, they're much more likely to, to, to want to, to give again. Even the ones that were hesitant and watching, you know, there, there's people sitting in the background. You just don't know. There's this really funny story. When I was, I went to a leadership training probably 20 years ago now. And it was for high dollar fundraising. And there was a guy that came into the room and he worked with a major charity, really big charity, like American Cancer Society or something. It was a huge charity. And one day uh, they came running upstairs with a check from the, uh, the top. The names were Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. And it was for $25. So, you know, Roy Rogers was really wealthy. going to send $25, right? Why would he send $25 to the organization? Well, he wants to see... Is he going to get a thank you acknowledgement? Is he going to get any more information? Is he going to see any progress, you know, based on what it was that he pitched you? Like they're starting to, this is the enough money to begin watching. Right. And I, you know, I uh, have a philanthropist in my life that I've dealt with quite a bit who, uh, you know, he's a thousand dollars is his watch level. Right. If he's interested in something that's, you know, he'll, he'll get in at a thousand and in a couple of cases at 5,000 say, well, we got to be friends with them and see what they're doing. Right. And that means he's beginning to pay attention. But are they getting called on? Are, are the promises that are being made to them last year being fulfilled the following year? And if not, are they explaining what happened? Are they getting progress reports? That's what they're doing. They're checking you out. They want to see if they can trust you. Will you do what you say? Hey, Brandy, being younger, and I don't know if you, I think you may have some professional experience in this. Like, so I, I'm, yeah, I've done a lot of email marketing in, in politics and outside of politics um but like as far as like you know the apps you know TikTok, instagram like what are the do you see that being able to work for kind of what Absolutely. jim's talking about yeah well i use uh so i do social media marketing for my day job so i do like facebook campaigns instagram campaigns things like that that 100 percent, i create demographics which you can like do within the meta facebook mm -hmm. app mm -hmm. um uh, so I don't know when it comes to like getting data from it, though, that I'm not sure because I've never I, I, I'm unsure on that part. I think that there probably is. I just haven't gone that deep into it. I just set up the campaigns for uh, e-commerce and in e-commerce. Well, e but on the other end, like as far as the messaging to them and getting mm -hmm. them to click and do things. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. How, how, do, how does that like I, I don't have any of those apps. I, I Yeah. But so like. People, I've heard though, people have made a lot of money selling stuff on TikTok and done so in a pretty short amount of time. So obviously there are people who see ads and act on them. So, right? Yeah, you just create a call to action. You do that all within the campaign structure. And I definitely think that would be a very valuable thing for any candidate to do in marketing and have like how you said uh, um, that he was using sound bites. Like, I feel like if there was a candidate that could just do that on Instagram, you know? Yeah. Like, or yes. just do yes. reels, quick reels, you know, and like have that and then have a call to action on those reels. And so people click it and they go to the website, you know, they go to his platform, they go to like that. 
uh, platform or even like a donation site, I, even though I feel like you'd probably want to send them to the platform because they're not getting enough information in that soundbite to really make a decision on whether or not they mm -hmm. want to donate, but send them somewhere where they can get more information yep. and have like an ability for them to donate pretty easily. A yep. workflow. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I've got one more question for you, Jim, and then I think I've got a I've got a cut. I t I said uh, I told Emily I would I would help the baby after nine or help with the baby after nine. So, um, uh, you had mentioned earlier, and God God, am I familiar with this now? Um, how <laughs> the party has uh, the structure of the party has built in <laughs> incentive problems that incentivize. Yeah, Aaron knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> That has has built in incentive problems that incentivize focusing on uh, not necessarily the, the the best thing or the most productive thing or having to win this fight over here to put that fire out over here so that maybe we can work on this over here and then blah, blah, blah. It, it gets freaking ridiculous. Um, is there is there a structure that you think what like what are some structural changes that could set the right incentives because this is something that we are very heavily talking about internally. We have some ideas we. I'll let everyone know. We plan on making some big changes to the to the bylaws um, to to hopefully create a structure that more incentivizes getting work done and, and all of that. What what is, what is your opinion on how how to set those incentives right? Um, I'm limited in this in 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 a couple of sets, senses. I don't want to like be on any you know particular side in this in in whatever current debates going on right now. Um, I so and I also think that there are some degrees to which this is natural to the to the to the institution if you stop and think for a second about our principles in general the way we carry them out we usually think very individually and entrepreneurially uh the party is anti-entrepreneurial and very collective and so the the tragedy of the commons becomes a real issue and the fact that there's a lack of uh you know people who do good work have to come and get asked ask permission to get it done and uh, they 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 take uh, they take they get friendly fire uh, as they as they go about doing it. Their motives get impugned. Um, I think everybody has to try their hardest that they can to not be that way in the culture. Um, I I uh, I have uh, some work relationships in my in my recent career in my recent past where some where the things that the people were doing were not the way I would have done them. I didn't automatically assume that 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 they were bad people for that reason. Uh, even if I thought that what they were doing was really wrong, I did see that they were trying to do the right thing, right? And so having that bias in that direction, uh, structurally speaking, the party, uh, there's one office that they care the most about when they elect them at convention, and that's your chair. Mm -hmm. And the chair has traditionally been the CEO of the party and should be, but they can't be at work every day and they shouldn't be at work every day. They have another life and another career. And their main job, and Steve Dosbach was, to my mind, the best chair ever, not just because of the stories I just told you about the success, but because he recognized that he had to get people together. And so the job that he had was twofold. One, he had to hire the national director and, and, and work and to keep that national director accountable to what was going on, have an understanding, a sense, an involvement in that process as a CEO would. But, but he left Perry to run the show. I'll get to Perry in a second. What he spent most of his time doing was herding the cats on the LNC. He spent his time talking to those other people. He went around states and talked to the people there. Um, if you've met Perry Willis, if you've had the opportunity, I'm surprised because not many people do. Uh, he's an introvert's introvert. He wants to do the work, which is exactly what you would have wanted out of the person that's in the office every day. So he oversaw the staff and he oversaw the fundraising and he, over, and he set strategy. 
And he's a very commanding presence once he's in a room. Uh, but what he was there was to do that job. The chair saw his job as making sure that Perry could do his job. And Perry saw his job with one, I'm sorry, unfortunate exception, uh, to be every, to do everything he could to make Steve look good, make sure that what Steve was saying was true. And uh, But there was a real bond between those two people. Those two men know each other and like each other to this day. They have respect for one another. Um, but they had respect at the time that they were in the trenches with one another. Then neither one of them were scapegoating one another at all. If they had something to settle, they settled it between them, and they emerged from their from those discussions unified as to what was going to happen. The chair should be looking out for his staff with the committee. The committee uh, should only be looking at results and outcomes and asking questions. They should not be dictating new projects. They should not be mini CEOs. They should not be telling, uh, saying you should be doing this. You are. It's real easy in hindsight, 2020, to sit there in your 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 passenger seat playing driver, right? Uh, just no, there's no room for it. There's none. Uh, it's strictly, are we accomplishing the mission? Are we doing the best we can? And what the, what the committee should normally be asking the staff instead of uh, beleaguering them with this priority and that priority is how can we help? How can we help? And, how, and, and, and then once again, how can we help? So I think that core relationship is the most important relationship and everybody ought to respect that. Now, because they got elected and it's political, you know, Hard to hard to hold that level of accountability in place. But I would want someone who agreed to that more than I would want someone who agreed with every platform, uh, uh, every one of my platform ideas. So so boiling that down, it's almost more a personality thing than necessarily a structure thing. That's character. what I heard. Character. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. 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 There's there's a character uh, quality to this here. But really, your chair should be your CEO in your present structure and your executive director should be running the ship day to day, uh, carrying out the mission that's been agreed to and, and been campaigned for by the chair. And so, you know, Steve Dosbach got into the job. He'll tell you this if he was here in uh, 1993. And uh, he, the first guy he hired for chair was a mistake. It was a big mistake. And it took him a few months to figure that out. But once they figured it out, they moved quick and, and called Perry, who had been national director once in the 80s as well, they called him and asked if he would be available to do it. And he said yes. And and that was the beginning of the story that we told you tonight, the lost story of the uh, of the party membership. If I could just throw in the numbers at the time, I don't know what, you're, what the numbers are now, but at the time there were th over there were about 32,000 dues paying members at peak. And there yep. was they had a subscription level called. Uh, so it, this meant that they didn't sign the pledge. They had just given some money to the party. And that was close to thirty nine thousand at its peak. And they've not come anywhere near those numbers ever since. Yeah, I think we're at about 16, 17. I think, I think that's where we're at right now. So uh, better is possible. It's already been done. The right. four-minute mile's already been run, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, my, my observation uh, is that there's too much, structurally speaking, there's, there's too much, uh, we're, we're looking to be representative too much. Uh, and, and like you said, somebody has to get in there to want to do the work. You know, I don't, I don't go to Amazon because I'm looking to be represented. I'm, I'm going to Amazon because I, I want a product and they do a good job of delivering the product and, and offering me the best product at the best prices and, and widest variety and yada, yada. Um, now obviously we can't fully privatize the libertarian party. Uh, you got to have these conventions, you have to have, uh, elections and all of that stuff. But I, I am starting to more and more strongly think that, um, we need to define what these board members are doing a little bit more.
well, good luck with that. <laughs> uh, I, I wish you the best. And I appreciate the opportunity that's been, that I've been given here tonight to, to share a, a story that's uh, personal, uh, somewhat tragic in my mind. And uh, the fact that I'm able to share it, I hope, uh, creates some hope. I hope there's people who heard it tonight that will want to do something with the news that they've learned that we that the party could be bigger and better, uh, significantly bigger and better, and that the tools to do it are a lot easier than the ones we had back then. Yeah, it fills me with hope and frustration. Like I said, it, <laughs> it, it, it fills me with hope because, like you said, it has been done and it can be done. And it's not exactly rocket science. It's just good ideas and execution. You know what I mean? And that's it. And And it fills me with frustration. Cause like I said, we constantly aim for our foot and shoot ourselves in the face. Like it, and that does get old. <laughs> like, yeah. So I, I would say, keep things simple then don't, I mean, we weren't trying to do, hit any home runs at the time. It was very much a, you know, get on base and keep driving runs in uh, type of approach. Uh, just get that routine going. And then, and then, you know, then once you got the game really running, maybe you can take a swing at the fence every so often, but don't start there. Try to just get on the base and get it done. And the, and the base, the base, as far as I'm concerned, is that first come the members, then comes the money and the candidates, and then the other successes that you want will follow. It's not votes first. It's members first. Yeah, that's the email that I sent out today to everybody on our list was basically exactly that. It's like people we've always kind of wanted to, uh, I'm sure, Jim, in your days, you've, you know, people always play the game of, oh, like what celebrity libertarian could we get to run and in ohio as you know people are like oh let's get drew carey to run for senate or something like mm -hmm. that and it's just it doesn't you're not gonna hit a grand slam with the with nobody on base right like you gotta yeah. you gotta yes. build things base up. is empty grand slam yes, yes. <laughs> that's what that's what libertarians have been wanting for 50 years yeah yeah awesome well uh jim where where can people uh check out your work Oh my gosh. Uh, first, the thing that I care about the most that I'm doing right now is a podcast I started a little over a year ago called Grace Arkey with Jim Babka. Uh, tolerance is good. Forgiveness is even better. But grace is that ability to reach out across and, and find out something about someone who's different from you, someone who's at odds with you, and figure out how to uh, go the extra mile with them. And the, so that's what I do at Grace Arkey is we talk about uh, our country. We talk about social situations. We talk about even my faith. Uh, there, I am a believer, and my one of I have two role models, uh, uh, Jesus and uh, Daryl Davis. And if you know, uh, everybody knows Jesus, but not everybody knows Daryl Davis. Daryl has is a black blues and rock and roll musician that played with Chuck Berry's keyboardist, who uh, took advantage of this uh, of this fact to to make friends with white supremacists and Klan's members. He's got a couple more than two dozen Klan's robes hanging in his closets. He's made lifelong friends with people who hated black people. Uh, so that to me is the role model. Grace Arkey with Jim Babka is on all the podcasting platforms and YouTube. Uh, I, I continue to run Downsize DC, although I'm very part-time at this point. Uh, our goal there is to get 300 people out of every congressional district who want to visit congressional offices in waves uh, to support the One Subject at a Time Act, which is introduced in both the House and Senate right now, and the Read the Bills Act and the Write the Laws Act. And you know we have some criminal justice reform bills there as well uh, that we're working on. That's at downsizedc.org. I am the editor at large at the Advocates for Self-Government, which as you mentioned at the top of the podcast is where the world's smallest political quiz is. And we're excited right now because we just launched a, a new venture over the summer called ASG.stream, which is a movie platform. Uh, uh, we're now over 
200 hours worth of programming on the network, even though it's brand new. Uh, there's there's the Soho Forum debates were one of the most recent additions, but we've got documentaries and shorts and comedy bits and just a whole bunch of good material there that uh, anybody who loves Liberty can spend time uh, uh, watching. If we can get a little bit bigger, we're going to be on Roku. So that's, that's the next uh, step for that. Uh, but that's happening over at the Advocates for Self-Governments. Um, and I'm involved in helping to get started a group called Respect America. And this one's kind of personal because it tells stories of where people's, uh, it, first of all, it advances a philosophy of human respect, which says that anytime someone is has violence used initiated against them or their property damage or taken from them, their happiness, harmony, and prosperity diminishes always. It's always the case. That's a principle. It's like gravity. And we're going to try to illustrate this in story and testimonials. Uh, real people who've had coercion used against them, who've had their happiness taken away. Uh, we start off with a story. Uh, the very first one, the prototype was the story of Katie. So Katie has a, a face eating disease, a nerve disease um, that is incredibly painful. It's like an electric shock through the body. Uh, it's very, very rare orphan disease that uh, about half of the people get end up committing suicide. It does has just tremendously bad side effects and it's like eating away at the side of her face. It's very hard to, to watch. And, uh, she has two different ways she can treat it. She can take opioids or she can take cannabis, but she lives in Idaho, which is one of three states where cannabis is still completely illegal. So imagine going and talking to your legislators and showing them your face and what you're going through and saying, I need access to cannabis. And they say, I feel your pain. And then they turn around and they go onto the floor of their, of their legislature and they say, drug use is terrible. And anybody with smoked marijuana should be put in prison. Right? So she's uh, uh, trying to be recognized as a human being. We want to see her respected. We want to continue to tell stories just like hers on issue after issue after issue so that people can actually feel, they can empathize with the pain that's being imposed by the state's coercive powers. And we're going to do that at respectamerica.org. So that's the lineup of things, partial, that I'm involved with right now. So I was reading a comment. Um, <laughs> Hope it was a good one. Uh, I think so. But yeah, that all sounds awesome, man. I'm certainly going to be subscribing to your podcast and uh, I'll be reaching out and trying to keep this uh, conversation going, man. I feel like I have a, a lot I can learn from you. So appreciate I, your You time. know what? I, I have to say out loud uh, something, and that is that uh, the, the way that you have conducted yourself in our calls has been moving to me. I have appreciated your openness, uh, your willingness to course correct. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't. I think because a lot of what goes on in a party involves, you know, kind of like pugilism. There's some some combat going on uh, that people have, you know, seen maybe more of that side of you. Uh, but the side uh, that I have seen of you in our in our conversations off to the side has been one of somebody who is admits wrong, admits learning, uh, admits trying to to do better, and and is it seems to really be striving in that direction. So I appreciated that, and I very, very much appreciated the opportunity to come share uh, this past history with you today. Thank you, and it was a pleasure seeing everybody here. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Jim. Cool, man. Thank you very much. All right, guys. Um, well, that's what we got to get back to. That's what we're shooting for. Uh, keep your eyes peeled for uh, the Dave Smith uh, podcast on Friday with a big announcement. Q&A spaces will be coming on uh, Friday with that announcement as well. Uh, we're going to keep doing the Defend the Guard phone bombs. I think we uh, shifted, I think it was three, well, I sh shouldn't say we. The people who did the phone bomb uh, moved like three state house reps in uh, New Hampshire for Defend the Guard. I think we get two more, it passes the house. So help us to uh, you know, support those efforts, support those local level candidates, make Gadget happy. 
go to lpmesiscaucus.com slash donate, and we will see you guys next week. Okay, see y'all. Bye-bye.